Uh, this is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance podcast. Um, I don't know what podcast this is. Uh, 62, probably. Um, 61 or 62. Uh, and with me in uh, Sweden is Johan Edebo. Good afternoon. Uh, from India, from New Delhi, Varun Mather. Good evening. In uh, New York and Long Island, Hiroyuki Hamada. Hi, how you doing, guys? And I think we will be joined by, I hope we will be joined by uh, Corey Morningstar. She had said she was going to be here, so she may pop in um, after a while. Uh, <clears throat> so this, I think the last podcast we did was 10 or 11 days ago, 12 days ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and and most of, of the news, of course, since then has been um, around uh, Russia, Ukraine. And I wanted to, to talk a little bit about media and and the shaping of discourse and and the massive propaganda effort that mainstream media has put out um, around the the uh, Russia Ukraine story and and the sort of russophobia that exists which is mm. just bottomless it seems and and to begin with the fact that when we talk about media in the same way that when we talk about NGOs and global health institutions or or global banking uh, but with media it is, almost there is a total hegemony uh, by the West. These, these platforms, all major, you know, Google, Microsoft, and on and on and all social media platforms, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is, you could go the whole list of, of stuff, not to mention Hollywood and, and uh, mainstream news sources, MSNBC and CNN mm. and so forth. All of them are Western-based, all of them. And the, the ones that are not, I mean, there are news organizations, obviously, other places. Uh, but if you, if you put China aside for a moment, because that's a special case and we can talk about that, uh, these are all Western-based and they are in complete alignment with each other. Everybody has seen the various uh, sort of pastiche of during the, the COVID story. The, the pastiche of, of news readers and global leaders, presidents and so forth in Western countries, all repeating the same stuff. It was all the build back better um, uh, marketing campaign. And and they were the script was identical. The copy they were reading was almost word for word. Uh, we're seeing something not completely dissimilar with Russia, Ukraine and and uh, the the it's reaching the 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 warmongering is reaching levels i personally in my lifetime have never seen mm. uh you know the the uh johan may <laughs> pointed out the the swedish yogurt company pulled a product from the shelves because it was russian yogurt and had a picture of saint basil's cathedral <laughs> on it it was an entirely swedish made product but didn't matter um, <laughs> Russian grandmaster, um, Sergei uh, Karyakin, who played 
uh, Magnus Carlsen, uh, a very tough match uh, about four years ago uh, for the championship. Uh, I was banned for six months because uh, he said something favorable about Putin. And of course, really, it was for simply being Russian. And the other Russian grandmasters, of which there are many, uh, have been have been absolutely silent because because they don't they don't want a ban um, as well. But you're seeing this 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 assumption. It may have been topped off with yesterday the announcement that Zelensky would appear at the Academy Awards. This was Amy Schirmer's idea. He would zoom in. Uh, and and Amy Schirmer, of course, is Chuck Schirmer's daughter, uh, and very rich, and is uh, very disliked in the business, actually. But never mind that. Uh, so so you couple this to Zelensky's speech before Congress, which was extraordinarily stage managed. Uh, and in his green fatigue T-shirt, and I had the whole thing. Um, <laughs> I did like that he invoked um, Mount Rushmore as a symbol of something. As you know, you couldn't make it more kitsch. I don't think um, if if you tried. But anyway, <clears throat> the point being that there is an absolute uniformity of opinion, and uh, in Europe. Uh, I think, in general, the public certainly. My anecdotal experience suggests I've I've heard from former students in Poland, just hysterical, just screaming hysterically that I was Putin's stooge and paid. I must be paid by the Kremlin or something. Um, so there is a there is there has been a a, a real uh, propaganda. Uh, tsunami that has ensued over the last few weeks uh, and and it has culminated in both the Amy Shermer thing and in the BBC announcement yesterday that there are no Nazis in Ukraine uh, they've been eradicated uh, so they're just openly lying now and it's actually a, a shocking level of dishonesty but uh, these are topics to talk about, as well as I would like to get into just the effects of media in general, the infantilization of the public. Um, I know Johan has thoughts about that, and it was in my last blog post. And also, at what point and by what means did Putin become such an enemy of the West? What exactly has Putin done that makes him... Um, that, that, that he's being described as the new Hitler and so forth. It's, it's stunning and a bit confusing in a way to me. I know the obvious answers, but anyway, Johan. Yeah, yeah, I can just go on on, on, on those topics if, if nobody minds. I mean, these, these are hugely complex topics, I, I think. And with regard, I mean, they have deep ideological roots all the way back into how technology impacts modern civilization and all of that. But I mean, just if we look a little bit closer to this, uh, this black and white narrative situation that you mentioned, uh, you spoke of how uh, people can't really accept that, that Yugoslavia is a relevant example to this, this current situation, you said. And I, I think this must be explained in relation to to the decontextualization of information in our current media landscape. And, and this is an old, uh, and it's a complex problem. 
Uh, Neil Postman devoted a lot of time to that issue in his uh, 1984 book, uh, which I, I like to, to bring into the debate, Amuse, Amusing Ourselves to Death or whatever it's called. But I mean, the decontextualization means that I, I say the full force of, of the propaganda, of the reproduction of ideology can hit you with its, its libidinous and emotional impact because you do not have this this broader rational filter to, to balance it. You, you don't have this anchoring of your rational criticism to, to like mount a defense because, and this connects also to how, how our world looks at itself ideologically and, and with regard to the worldview, because I mean, politically it's chaos, it's incomprehensible. The, the modern secular worldview is, is equally incomprehensible. Nobody knows anything about history. I, I met two middle-aged guys last a few days back and, and nobody had ever heard of Emperor Nero, for instance. So <laughs> there's no counterbalancing for your, there's no leverage for, for with which you can reflect upon and contextualize and, and examine the propaganda narratives so they can just be piped straight into your brain, basically. And this, to connect with what you wrote in your last blog post, I think this forces us to regress to the bare bones of myth, and especially when we're overloaded with information and thrust into fear. Yeah. No, I think, I think, I think that's very a good summation, a very good summation. And, and uh, uh, we've talked before about also the way in which, I mean, because there's levels of engagement, right? I mean, there are people, a vast number of people, perhaps a majority of people out there are very casual news readers. They, they don't, they're not researchers. They, it's not their main uh, focus or, or topic of interest. They simply watch the evening news. They read the major newspapers, um, maybe a bit more than that. But uh, and and then you have people who are more actively political, uh, people who are perhaps activists at some point or were activists formerly. Uh, and and they are people often who use social media, whether it's Twitter or, or Facebook or whatever. Um, there's a there's a ton of new ones all the time. And and that group and i suppose let me just add there's a there's then there's the more the more um experienced political analysts out there people who do this kind of full time to some degree like all of us uh who are engaged in current events and but with history and philosophy and and psychoanalysis and whatever then the economics and um that middle tier, and of course they bleed into each other a bit, but that middle tier, because the casual listener is going to absorb the mainstream narrative. The people who are more actively engaged to some degree, however, are a very problematic group. And it's hard, even if people are really sincere, those platforms are, and I think Varun said this weeks ago, these platforms distort the worldview hugely. And, and, it's it's very hard to keep reminding oneself of that fact, I think. 
that that we are not seeing uh we are we are listening and reading to this constant stream going on of sound bite observations from people who often have an agenda you know and mm. and are extremely biased sometimes not very well intentioned and uh uh and so when you when you hear things klaus schwab the other day said one of the things with the great reset is we have to take better control of the internet because there's too much disinformation and fake news out there this is an ominous declaration i think uh but but it it speaks to because there is a lot of fake news the problem is a lot of it comes from cnn and bbc uh so so you have to you have to parse all of this uh, and 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 try to make sense of of these levels of indoctrination, I guess. But in general, God, I'm being long winded tonight. In general, um, that that indoctrination, the 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 saturation that we all suffer from um, in in relationship to to the internet and and all these various platforms uh is is a is a a crucial question because the, you know the russia ukraine story has been um it's like alice through the looking glass i mean we are seeing stuff that that is patently false and wrong but we are also seeing from so many sort of pseudo left sites or self-identified left sites um stuff that is extraordinarily reactionary it seems to me that that simply will not fully condemn u.s nato expansion and aggression and provocation and you know you mentioned yugoslavia i mean this was a perfect example and people don't see the relationship often mm -hmm often they do not see the relationship to what happened in Yugoslavia. Yeah. They don't understand the bombing of Libya that reduced it to rubble and, and killed Gaddafi. Uh, they see no relevance. They don't see the relevance with Syria. Uh, so, so it's, it's a problem. It's, I don't, I don't know the, um, the answer exactly, but I know that often, I think we all feel uh, uh, fatigue and 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 a bit of um, a bit discouraged by by because we all get personal assaults from people by by trying to explain that in one sense Russia is ending the war against Donbass. They are not starting a war. There were people being shelled for eight years. There were thousands and thousands of victims, many children. Um, they have found mass graves now in eastern Ukraine. So it's it's and then there is this question. This is the other topic. I'm going to turn it over to somebody. Varun maybe here. Um, there is the the other topic of the rehabilitating of fascism that is going on and this is extraordinary this is extraordinary i mean putin's not only being compared to hitler it's being suggested that hitler was more restrained than putin um that wall street guy issued a tweet the other day you know that that suggested hitler was not really as bad as putin because at least he didn't gas his own people 
you didn't use chemical weapons, you do want to ask what he thinks Zyklon B is, but never mind that. It's it's so so that's that's the place we have reached. And um, so those I open those topics. Varun Hiroyuki, what whoever wants to speak. Well, um, I, um, I, I mean, I, I can only only repeat um, what you just said. Basically, uh, uh, you, you covered the uh, basic, and uh, also uh, we will need to go back to the uh, um, authoritarian personality. You know, the, the fact that the uh, uh, we are so um, submerged in the uh, indoctrination and propaganda, we have cultivated um, uh, authority within ourselves. Mm -hmm. We have this um, collective consciousness that is totally uh, subjected to the uh, uh, the capitalist framework. So when people sense that um, organized uh, momentum is uh, overflowing in our society, uh, they uh, they see it as uh, a decree. Um, and it, the decree is, structurally functional and systematically functional and there's no way you can um, uh, disobey um, and it, since it's um, emanating from individuals as well as from the um, authority actual authority um, it's very very effective people are voluntarily engaged in uh, exclusion of their community members, uh, attacks against community members, um, uh, organizations, uh, NGOs, uh, academics, uh, journalists, organizations, they all engage in this uh, witch hunt activities to exclude anyone who has um, uh, different opinions. So it's uh, um, it's the very uh, there's this psychological element that's firmly uh, ingrained in the uh, structure of the uh, capitalist society, mm -hmm. and since it's in those people who are engaging in the situation, it's it's really hard to uh, uh, evaluate and examine uh, for themselves because. It's like you have this mental condition and you are supposed to evaluate your mental condition with the brain that's, that has the condition. So um, it's a very difficult situation. And I, I think like, you know, J John's just mentioned that, you know, we're all being attacked. And, um, um, and I think it's getting to be a point uh, we we have to be concerned about practical matter of um, leading our uh, regular lives. Um, uh, I'm sure you know we are starting to really uh, feel the uh, exclusion and uh, attacks uh, around us um, from people we know, people who we interact with uh, in daily activities. Um, so uh, and of course that will be an element of destabilization and destabilization of the society would be very, very beneficial to the uh, authority because they don't know what's going on. It's confusing. 
um, <clears throat> have someone who can be stern and firm about the opinions, the authority, uh, they would go for it. Yeah. So um, this is, there are multiple um, uh, cycles of uh, 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 predicaments uh, feeding each other, uh, feeding in circles. Um, it's a very uh, uh, difficult situation. And it, it goes back to the fact that the whole thing is a structure problem, the structure problem yeah. of big wealth accumulation, which is dominating our society, um, basically numbing us, basically lying to us, deceiving us, um, in order to perpetuate the um, uh, stru structure of the uh, exploitation. Um, <clears throat> Varun, I'm, I'm just curious to get your perspective vis-a-vis -vis India on this. Well, yeah, India's got very good ties in terms of the weapons industry and trade with Russia. And um, publicly, the government has been scolded, so to speak, by on American media to say that we need to deliberate, we need to have a stand and take a stand against Russia. But the only place that I've actually seen it is on a news show, which is run by this absolute lunatic who's always screaming. And uh, <laughs> the, the popular conception and perception of him is that he's basically a puppet of the government. And that I think is a very, devious move because that kind of because see India was already listed on multiple lists over the last few years about losing um, losing points about uh, tolerance and that India was leading towards an intolerant state under the present regime and such things there's also been um, a letter that was sent from the US to the Indian government about being tolerant of Muslims and things like that, which have happened. And every now, every few months, there will be a new story in international media about how India is becoming less and less tolerant, right? That narrative is already seeded in. So when there is a guy like this, who's a news anchor, who's being scolded by an American on live TV, saying mm -hmm. that you need to take a stand against Russia. And this guy is saying that, who the hell are you to tell us? what we should be doing or what we should not be doing, you have already fructified a pro-NATO stance within the public. There is no question about that at all anymore because right. anybody who's going to support that guy is a lunatic himself. I've called him a lunatic and I'm shocked at looking at, him, looking at this guy talking <laughs> kind of critically about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. And so that puts a lot of people in a very difficult position because that's, that's the in continuous inversions that are going on. And nobody seems to understand, like Hiroyuki was saying, that it's the structural problem is such that the, co the major corporations will come in and sell you your resources, but you don't have the capacity to think of it like that. Because right. the idea that progress and development has been seeded in terms of how you how much you can consume the earth and how quickly you can do it mm. has been so normalized that the war effort goes along with preserving that kind of life and anything that goes against the imperialist tendencies of the military industrial complex is suddenly looked at as outcasts so you you're immediately shut out of conversation 
if you're now yeah. saying, wait a second, do you understand what the trajectory is? Since like, at least in our lifetimes, we know what has been going on since the late 80s. So you can go all the way back to Bosnia and then you can go Yugoslavia, like you mentioned, and then the first Gulf War and the slow spread eastward that how can you not notice that suddenly everybody that disagrees with NATO narrative is suddenly a dictator and a madman. Right. And, you know, like it's just unbelievable that people can fall for that. But that's the other thing is that I, I read a piece of research recently which said that most people who are using digital platforms for whether they're consuming news or entertainment, the span of attention is now less than seven seconds. <laughs> so I don't expect anybody to have an analytical take on what they're going through. It's just sinking into that. Yeah. And there is no way that they can analyze it. Yeah, seven seconds is about a goldfish, I think. <laughs> yeah. um, Johan? Yeah, and in connection to this, I, I think what you're saying here, Yuki, is very important. I mean, when you're talking about the the emergence of the classical authoritarian personality with these these exclusion rituals in our relationships, animosities in our private sphere, I think this very much connects with the well, the digital environment, the informational overload, the, the fear-mongering narratives. I mean, it, it's so obvious that there's a, there's a clear causal relationship here. And I mean, if we just, just to give you a couple of examples, I had a lecture, I held a lecture yesterday about the, the risks of digital media, especially with regard to children. And I mean, you, you can clearly see in the research that social media use it is detrimental, it lowers your empathy scores, uh, not just, uh, it's not just a problem for learning and these kinds of things. And as you know, I mean, the brain kind of works as a muscle and it's especially relevant for children because kind of the brain prunes away these neural connections that it doesn't use until it's uh, like uh, stabilized in, in the mid twenties. And if, if your brain is being formed in the absence of, of these tactile and the facial contact with other human beings, I mean, you're going to be stunted. And look at the, the last two years of, of, uh, of COVID isolation uh, and tell me that's not going to impact future society at a very deep level. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, that uh and, and it's interesting, just as a sidebar, I don't want to get distracted from this line of discussion, but as a sidebar, you will note how <clears throat> how much official sort of walking back of the official COVID story has taken place. I mean, extraordinary, you know, oh, yes, well, we, we overcounted, you know, by a factor <laughs> of a thousand, but never mind. Um, and actually, yeah, we just discovered that that there is an immunity, a natural immunity to COVID in many people. It's just, it's like, you can't make it up. It's just, it's just you know, anyway, but end of sidebar. Um, yeah, I think that the effects of the lockdowns, the mandatory masking, social distancing for children in school, the, the repercussions um, are being wildly underestimated and they are going to go on for a long, long time and for years and years and years and decades, probably. There is a whole one or two generations now that brought up 
with complete habituation to social media. And then on top of it, the protocols for COVID. Uh, I think this is contributing enormously to this, this quality of unreality that people feel uh, the, the depression that comes with, but also this, this sense of uh, uh, this sense of appeal that war holds. Um, it's exciting. It's like a Hollywood movie. And I wrote in my blog the, the phenomenon of military clothing entering the mainstream, camouflage and so forth, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, Ralph Lauren or whoever now has camouflage lines and they then the military borrows their camouflage designs from Ralph Lauren in turn and so forth. So for especially this, the idea that there is a crisis of, of masculinity, um, it certainly uh, uh, expresses itself in these rituals of violence and control violence or or the 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 presentation of violence on screens and the identification with that and so i'm seeing this uh this nostalgia first of all for a kind of marketed cold war you see old cold war images cropping up and there's an enormous appeal for people they want a new cold war uh and and the the uh the sort of reification that has gone on with weaponry, uh, the 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 fetishizing of guns and and gun violence and so forth, which is a staple of Hollywood, of course, and it's all kind of marinated in this constant valorization of militarism and service to the state. And so, of course, you have a young public that is marching in goose step, if not lockstep. Um, toward toward uh, a, 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 a rubber stamp okay for you know U.S. NATO aggression. It's a given. It's like it, it's unthinkable that the U.S. and NATO doesn't exist. Just like it's unthinkable capitalism doesn't exist. There there is no reflection on it. People are really numbed and kind of um, zombie like. You know. Uh, uh, walking towards this this new you know global fascist state and i i, I will call on varun and johan that rehabilitation of fascism though goes right alongside all of that. that's really important factor that that we are seeing in hollywood and in in uh, madison avenue uh, a constant um presentation of new versions of of old Third Reich uh, style codes, Mussolini as well, even Franco, sort of uh, nostalgia for Franco with Spain, uh, a lot of films set in that era, on and on and on it goes. And so uh, people are, you know, you see Americans and Swedes and Norwegians running off to Ukraine to fight. I mean, God only knows what they think that means exactly. Um, and that's a whole other discussion is to look at what exactly are the weapons that the U.S. is exporting to Ukraine. Don't I want to return to that topic. Um, Varun? There's also, I think, one question that has been kind of 
sidelines a lot. Uh, it has popped up in mainstream media a lot, but it just continuously gets buried under the political ideology. Is that, okay, let's say that there is a war. What does NATO exactly want? And when we trace that a little bit more, it always turns out that it has always been resource wars. Always. There is nothing else behind that. And it's control of governments and resources that ultimately kind of results in all of these extended long periods of skirmishes and battles and wars and bloodshed and millions of lives are lost. And ultimately, there is a puppet government that is installed. There is private public partnerships that are made. And suddenly you have a nation which is completely in debt, decimated and on their knees, completely dependent on the American banking system. And that's something that not many people speak about because it, the, the political ideology, which is for me, um, it becomes a distraction in itself. And, and that's what's being played out here, like you were mentioning, is that what is the relationship between now that you're suddenly calling him worse than Hitler? And is that, that because the Second World War was seeded as the worst calamity that humanity had meted upon itself. And if you can relate it to that, then suddenly the saviors who saved us from the Second World War are going to save us now, which is the Allies. And so there it goes, right? Like that's the story that just keeps spinning itself. Right, right. <clears throat> no, and we should talk about that there is additionally a kind of currency war going on, the end of the petrodollar, since Russia is mm -hmm. going to be selling to unfriendly countries. Uh, the transactions will only take place in rubles, but that's God knows a complicated discussion. Johan. Mm, uh, yeah, as you say, Varun, I mean, there are obvious material preconditions behind this conflict. And if you say that, it's, it's almost taboo to, to mention this because then you're re relativizing the, the evils of Putin. But I, I, I have, uh, and also a remark, I mean, the, the re-emergence of the authoritarian personality that you speak of, Hiroyuki, I mean, I think that is identical to the rehabilitation of fascism because it's basically the same thing as this internalization of colonial violence and imperialism among the general public that we see. But I have two questions that are kind of divergent. One question is regarding the food security situation in India right now that you might be able to, to inform us about, Varun. And I was also wondering, John, about, I think you posted a clip that's relevant to all of this, which uh, maintain that uh, I think teens or young people uh, do not understand what selling out means today. And I think that's kind of relevant to this discussion. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, Varun, do you want to answer that first? Or? Yeah, sure. Um, so during COVID, there was a, the two years in 2020, there was a scheme that was launched by the central government that was going to give free food to people below the poverty line. Um, recently, that has now been extended up to November this year, if I'm not mistaken. And at the cost of, I think $800 billion that people are getting free food. But alongside that is already in progress the digitization of identities. So yeah, these passports yeah. are being um, pumped out. And if you don't have your Aadhaar card or your digital ID system set up, then you're not eligible. You won't be able to get it, right? Like, things like that are going on. There's also the 
there have been um, drones that have been introduced in industrial farming setups for surveillance oh. in the state of Punjab, which is where primarily the protesters had come from. Right. Against mm-hmm. the farmers, right? And one of the big corporations, the Adanis, have, and that news really kind of flew under the radar, offered farmers personal personal loans from directly from the corporation. And as soon as that happened, one week later or a couple of weeks later, the protest was disbanded. Most of the, some of the leaders of the protest are now uh, vying for political leadership and they're launching their own political parties. And while they're saying it's about food security, Bill Gates was hired uh, last year as the health ambassador for India by the prime minister. And when I traveled recently in multiple states, I had a conversation with a lot of farmers on ground and most of them, especially in Maharashtra, which has the highest incidence of farmer suicide, have been forced in one way or the other to change plant from planting whatever they're planting to corn. And so now they're only planting corn so that corn syrup and corn glucose and all of these things can be made for fast moving consumer goods, which are packaged like corn chips and I don't know, lays like this. So <laughs> there is a very, there is a very dangerous game here that is making, forcing people to one, sign up to the digital IDs in one way or the other. And second is to change the plantation cycles entirely. This has been uh, publicly stated by the prime minister. It's not something that's conspiracy theory. He said that we are going to change how the health of this country looks like. And I mean, if it's coming from Bill Gates, you can imagine what that actually means. And of course, Monsanto has been, Monsanto and uh, Bayer have been pretty deep um, in, like, I've, I've been talking to many farmers and it's impossible, almost impossible to find any regenerating indigenous seeds now. Wow. So anybody who that, that tells you, when you go to, so you always have these weekly bazaars in, in, in the midst of the farms, right? in these massive farms and then you'll have all these villagers congregate once a week to sell their wares and meat and whatever. But there will always be this one old man or woman who's selling seeds and you go and ask them whether they are regenerating seeds and they will not really know the answer. And then the young people will come and say, no, these are all GM seeds. These are hybrids. All of them are hybrids. So the entire industry has already been taken over. It's not something that's happening right now. Right. And the government is now starting to give out, go, give away free food to <laughs> to large parts of the population, which I think is going to be, I think that's going to get linked into UBI eventually. But yeah. that's <clears throat> yeah. Well, I want to, yeah, UBI. We should, we should do. But um, apropos of of GM seeds. Uh, there's a couple of things going on. We're talking about the moving parts that are um, um, behind so much of this. Uh, in in the U.S., there are seed companies that are referred to, and 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 they refer to themselves this way as heirloom seed um, uh, sources. They have you know 
400 varieties of tomatoes and they're all old fashioned tomatoes from all over the world. Same with cucumbers. They sell you different greens, collard greens, mustard greens, 10 different varieties. So these are all heirloom. They're a little bit pricey and the price of those seeds has been going up gradually and maybe in some cases not so gradually. Uh, at the same time that you see Gates and these big corporations and Schwab and the World Economic Forum pushing and advertising the idea of synthetic food, you know, insect food, food uh, made out of petrochemicals, made out of, you know, human shit, made out of all kinds of things. I'm not making this up. And, and uh, of course, you know, there is, there is a attendant marketing to this stuff that suggests you are doing your part to save the planet because there's too many cows and they fart too much. And, you know, uh, we can't, it's unsustainable to keep eating meat and you can't eat your whammy burger. You have to eat, you know, your bug burger. Now, um, what's interesting about this food crisis in different places is that it's completely artificial. I mean, there's more than enough food to feel uh, to feed the world three times over. And uh, there are countless people uh, who who have knowledge of this and have spoken about this. But they're sort of being being sidelined in this whole debate. Uh, we have, you know, famine in the Congo, famine, of course, and, and disease outbreaks in Yemen. Uh, but across Africa, Ethiopia, massive food crisis right now there's famine starvation um uh and and th none of this is because there is a global shortage of food there's plenty of food uh this is to uh help transition into an era in which the proletariat the underclass globally are going to end up eating bugs and bug burgers and the very affluent will be the ones who can, you know, have little victory gardens with their heirloom seeds and eat proper nutritious food. Because I guarantee you, Bill Gates is not going to be eating food made from shit, you know, um, and and neither is Obama or Donald Trump or Joe Biden or anybody uh, above a certain income level. Uh, it, it, we are transitioning into a much more acute class stratification and 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 uh, segregation of classes and the underclass uh, at some point they're going to introduce universal basic income in the west soon i suspect um, you look at the price of food in scandinavia certainly in norway and it's it's risen um, drastically i mean precipitous rise in i mean meat is unaffordable here now um, mm. Fortunately, uh, a lot of people hunt and they have stores of food, but but it's just unaffordable. Gas has doubled in a year. They don't want people driving anywhere. They don't want people traveling anywhere. At the same time, we have the introduction of these digital ID things. Now, you know, in Norway, it's a fait accompli. I mean, it's all digitalized already. And uh, uh, so I'm not going to notice it on a personal level very much because I'm already locked into this, this, this digital labyrinth. Um, but what I have noticed and what I suggest will happen in the 
not too distant future are massive problems with the digitalization, the technology, and the technology not working, the upkeep in, in many third world countries, the global south, the repair and upkeep of this technology will not occur. Uh, we're going to see car, uh, chaos and, and starvation in the global south. I mean, I think that's the intended goal probably for some of these people, probably not all of them. Uh, certainly, if you look at, at Europe, a vast majority in Scandinavia, Germany, France, see digitalization in a positive light, see it as part of this general trend of progress and so forth. Um, so it's a little hard to, to sell them on the, the hidden uh, dangers of this. Varun? Yeah, I'd just like to, like, I think just going forward from the idea of inflation and shortages, the Bank of International Settlements made a press release that I'd like to just read really quick. Yeah, yeah. Um, it says the Russian invasion of Ukraine has put an end to the globalization we have experienced over the last three decades. As a result, a large-scale reorientation of supply chains will inherently be inflationary. The war will prompt countries to reevaluate the currency dependencies. Even before the war, several governments were looking to play a more active role in digital currencies and define the regulatory frameworks under which they operate. A global digital payment system thoughtfully designed can enhance the settlements of international transactions while reducing the risk of money laundering and corruption. Digital currencies can also help bring down costs of cross-border payments. For example, when expatriate workers send earnings back to their families. And then following that, the Bank of International Settlements Innovation Hub, the Reserve Bank of Australia, Bank of Negara, Malaysia, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, and the South African Reserve Bank today announced the completion of prototypes for a common platform enabling international settlements using multiple central bank digital currencies. Wow. <clears throat> well, um, yeah, I, th I think that, uh, uh, you know, we, we've seen two years of, of, uh, COVID and, and these exaggerated uh, state responses. And as a as parentheses, uh, interesting watching Trudeau get um, roasted uh, in the EU and <laughs> his appearance. Uh, I don't draw any particular conclusion from that, except um, that my, my enjoyment of it. Um, close parentheses. Uh, I, I, I think now, since the mainstream news has transitioned from COVID to the, the evil Putin dictator, um, fears of World War III and so forth. Here's an interesting note, though, and, and anybody who wants to comment on this should. Um, Biden, who is just staggeringly visibly senile at this point, uh, spoke to troops somewhere, Poland, I think, American troops, and said, you know, I don't know what you're going to see when you get to Ukraine. And everybody was like going, what did he just say? Because the official American line is we're not going to send troops to, to Poland. I mean, in, to, to um, Ukraine, there will be no American troops fighting there. We are sending support and, and weaponry and so forth. Um, so afterwards, the media jumped on this you know, MSNBC and, and 
CBS and all of the big uh, uh, news corporate uh, outlets, the commentators were going, wow, it's going to be Biden's getting tough. American troops are going in there and, you know, this is a great thing. Zelensky's been begging for help. And um, the Pentagon immediately issued a statement with uh, several different generals saying, no, we are not going to send troops in because we do not want World War Three. We are not going to institute a no-fly zone because that would mean confrontation with Russian planes, and we do not want World War III. And additionally, no, Russian forces have not targeted civilians. In fact, they have been remarkably careful not to hurt civilians during this military operation. Now, this is from the Pentagon, uh, and it suggests that you know, somebody said, yes, yeah, so the media is far to the right of the Pentagon now. You know, good to know. Uh, but it is it is fascinating because it suggests and this this first became apparent, I think, during Trump's presidency, that that there are real splits among the ruling class. There are different factions pushing slightly different agendas. They always have shared interests, but. Uh, a lot of a lot of it is of what you hear in media is being resisted and is not what's going on in a lot of different corners of of the corridors of power. That was like a mixed metaphor, wasn't it? Um, anyway, or not even that. Um, anyway, Johan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was thinking a bit about your. You talked about the regression to myth a little bit, uh, and I, I, I mean, to, to go back, what, what is the, what is myth from from my perspective? And I, I would say that myths are just like the basic symbolic framework which we use to navigate reality at, at a more than than immediate basic level. I mean, it, it's the substructure of the worldview that you then use to uh, upon which we build these more complex frameworks. And, and when you have a, a chaotic situation characterized by fear and conflicting messages, th then this superstructure, this, this rational construct, it kind of evaporates and you, you, you get down to these basic, uh, this, this basic symbolic framework again. And I, I see a kind of connection here to, to what, what uh, because these, uh, these basic fundaments are not really negotiable. They, they're very they're very deeply anchored they're they're uh, you know framed by these basic libidinous attachments of, of safety and and fear and comfort and these things and i think it kind of relates to what i would call the the over socialization taking place in the contemporary uh, media situation that also in some sense is the same thing as this reemergence of the authoritarian personality and just let me define this concept very quickly yeah uh, yeah because no, over socialization it's, it's kind of old it goes back to you know emile durkheim and these guys and but but i think ted kaczynski made it popular in his in his famous little little work there but it basically refers to how these uh, these almost prussian institutions uh, it creates this strong internalization of the social mores uh, so that you 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 get this uh, 
authoritarian personality, this cop in your head, you, you get a very strong internal clock for, for predicting and, and defining your behavior, so to speak. And I would, I would argue that, uh, I mean, social media, it kind of marinates the person in this highly regimented environment that is also inevitably characterized by, by the priorities of, of a dominance hierarchy. And, and as it crowds out these natural human relationships between you and I, I mean, it kind of amounts to this sort of over-socialization that both uh, the, the early sociologists and, and, uh, and Ted Kaczynski also speaks about, especially when you add these, uh, these fact-checking uh, institutions that kind of, and, the, and these uh, intentional uh, operations to, to, uh, to you know, streamline the narrative. Yeah, no, th- that's really good. And, and it's interesting, just as I was listening to you just now, uh, the whole uh, ascension of expert, in quotation marks, experts, yeah. and of course, fact checkers, has come to, it's like the technologized superego, right? Yeah. It's the people's conscience now has merged in some strange way with the 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 experts and and voices of authority on social media on the internet in general and uh and often it's it's i mentioned before we got on the air the joan lies famous quote and asked about the french revolution what he thought of it and he said too early to tell that's now been, been debunked. No, he didn't say that. He was confused. He was talking about the, you know, Paris '68 and so forth. Um, and then, and then you examine the source of this debunking, and and it's you know two pages of debunking stuff on Google, because God forbid something smart be said by a Chinese communist. Uh, it's all one source. It's one source, the Financial Times, some guy at the Financial Times. This is what happens. But so you have a public uh, whose whose sense of conscience uh, and probably guilt and shame in a whole other register, conscience is their super ego is 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 cyber, you know, is is corporate um, and electronic. Uh, and that's a that's a really terrifying thing. Uh, I think there's something else in social media um, because you know at various times all of us have been subjected to smear campaigns and hit stuff. Just this week, um, it happened on on Twitter, and and it's often people masquerading as concern for the public good. And of course it's not because they're not attacking the ruling class or, or, or the, you know, captains of industry or the, you know, the great war machine. They are, they are attacking in fellow dissidents that, that, you know, they're, so it's a policing action. It's like intellectual policing action. And but social media lends itself to this. When you see threads or you're on Facebook or any of these platforms, someone makes a comment and you comment after them. Uh, it's always reactive because 
it's not like a face-to-face -face mm -hmm. conversation where there may be, if it's even just two people, but especially if it's a group of people face-to-face, -face, you are sharing gestures and, and um, body language and you look the person in the face when they're not there, when it's just this comment that then there is space for a comment, you know, below it, but in, in terms of, of, you know, meaning or importance, it's above it. You know, it's the next one. You have to, you have to serve as a correcting machine all the time to, to, to defend your, legitimacy somehow and that's very triggering and i see it in myself as well i you know um and i really try not to engage with people because there's no way to have there's no way to have a real discussion on social media on on the internet in that sense um and not even on zoom i don't think uh and i used to feel i remember when i was very young before any of this stuff uh, I used to feel very uncomfortable with the telephone. Mm. I didn't like, um, I remember not liking talking to girls, you know, um, <laughs> potential girlfriends on the telephone. I felt like it, I was very bad. My telephone skills were very bad. I did much better in person, you know. Um, uh, and But I couldn't figure out why that was. There was some sense of alienation uh, on the telephone. You, you, the dead air on the telephone when we talked about dead air on these podcasts, but you know, it, it pauses become accusatory and very uncomfortable uh, on the telephone. If I say, so uh, what are you doing today, Johan? And one, two, three seconds of silence. I think, what did I say wrong? You know, did his mother die today? And I did forgot what happened. Um, you so but this loss of face-to-face -face communication i think we're starting as a civilization to feel the implications of this and and they're probably far more detrimental than imagined previously johan mm. yeah yes to just to reiterate a bit uh, so i think over socialization may be a bad concept because i think that what, what really takes place is that you have no buffer no social or rational buffer for these basic mythological and strongly charged symbolic uh, this framework it, it just it uses you as a sort of, of uh, it expresses itself through you but I, I was all just wondering what, what your perspective Hiroyuki is on this uh, this notion that kids today don't know what selling out means is it relevant in this discussion or, or am I just uh, grabbing here Oh, oh, um, um, I mean, I, I have kids and they uh, seem to be navigating uh, uh, in their own ways. And uh, we, um, we do discuss uh, some of the things and um, um, I think it really depends on the context of uh, uh, their upbringings and uh, um, uh, uh, the social relations surrounding them, but but I, I do I do think that there uh, there's definitely uh, uh, risk to them uh, being exposed to um, screens as uh, you know uh, the authority uh, which dictate all the uh, narratives and uh, everything and 
also truncates um, um, our social relations. Like John's just saying that you know it, it's it's different. You know when you talk to people uh, online uh, through screens, it, it's 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 really uh, uh, there. There is a loss of uh, humanity in some ways, and also um, the the. The, uh, the history, loss of history, uh, context in general, um, really um, uh, sets in. And, uh, and all these are gonna be uh, hooked up to the um, uh, eventual uh, conditioning of uh, uh, minds and bodies through um, digitalization. Um, because you know, if your identities are hooked, hooked up to the uh, the network, um, it's very easy to uh, condition your activities, um, uh, survey all your activities, and um, um, and of course you have um, uh, food being subsidized, uh, money being um, distributed. Once these things come in. Um, you're gonna to be told that you have to do this and that in order to get this and that. Um, and if it's centralized, um, it's a very, very, uh, I mean, it's an obvious situation in which uh, we're gonna lose even more of social relations that are based on our actual needs. Um, yeah, but I, you know-, you know with, with oh, kids, Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, with kids, I think it's it's um, I think it's also um, it's difficult to generalize because um, I see myself as pretty uh, submerged in this web culture and uh, uh, the interactions and uh, uh, and I'm an artist and you know, I show my work through um, uh, screens and. Um, uh, I do know the benefits and also disadvantages. So it's, I'm totally in it. But at the same time, kids, uh, like my kids have friends and they interact and they do things that are completely inspiring and organic as well. So um, yeah, it's, uh, and it's also hurtful to see them being masked and, um, uh, being subjected to um, various forms of uh, draconian measures. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I, I I totally get what you what you're saying. Though. Well, I I just want to I because I didn't answer it before this idea of selling out. Um, uh, it certainly has the concept has has receded. Uh, in in uh, public discourse, as it were, uh, it's it's not a topic. Nobody dis I can't remember the last time I heard somebody call somebody. Oh, you're a sellout. Uh, it, it, people are will talk about their brand. You know, I hear young athletes, young musicians, young everything talking about. Well, it's important that I build my brand, um, which is just a heinous disfiguring concept for for humanity but uh the, and we've talked about this before so i'm just sort of repeating what what we've discussed before about the role of artists um 
as, as voices of opposition and, and dissenting. And there is none of that today. I mean, there is, but this is the problem with um, the internet and everything happening on screens is those voices of dissent from artists are much more effectively um, disappeared. They're marginalized and made invisible much more effectively than they were, say, 40 years ago. So, uh, and people are more terrified. The public lynchings, the, the official, uh, uh, you know, uh, what's the word, a stigmatizing of dissent uh, has come to terrify people. I know people who share our opinions and they won't utter a word about anything because they, they fear, they fear for their family, you know, um, that their children will get um, picked on at school. Their spouses will suffer a loss of job opportunity and so forth. And that's all real because this is, this is like, the technologized good German society now. Uh, it's extraordinary. But look who is here. Corey. Yeah. <laughs> you forgot yeah. that the Hi, club went forward, I, right? I thought, yeah, I thought, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Sorry. Hi, Corey. Okay. Hi, everybody. Hi. Um, so welcome. Uh, joining us is Corey Morningstar from Toronto. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm really glad you showed up. Uh, and there, that allows us to talk some more. Um, any topic you want to uh, join in on? We're just talking a lot about media and, yeah. and the effects that that has had on things and the, the Russia-Ukraine story um, in particular. Uh, I wanted to add one thing, and Corey, you may be able to talk about this. Um, back to this discussion of um, that Russia's uh, going to be trading oil and gas in rubles um, that they're going to, they have a partnership uh, presumably with China and probably with, you know, Belarus and, and Armenia and, and, and Iran. Um, this is, this is why I wonder if, if the U S has, is not just, this is not the hubris of these American think tanks, the people that, that work in these think tanks, um, because it seems to me that this will, in the long term, hurt U.S. the U.S. economy far more than it hurts the Russian economy. I don't know, but the idea that that the you know the uh, business stops taking place in American dollars must strike terror in the um, um, on Wall Street and, and the U.S. State Department. I don't know. This is just a sidebar to the whole thing. But anything else, Corey, that you would like to add? You have to catch up here. Yeah, no, I'm interested in what you were saying, John. I have to try to dig into that. And I, I'm not really understanding what will happen with um, the digital bank, what's it called, the central bank digital currencies and how that will affect it as well. Because, I mean, I think we touched upon that at the very end of the last podcast how that's being piloted in um, 90 countries. And it's actually in place in about seven, I think we said. Um, they have a really high tech um, website on the Atlantic Council on that. So that's moving forward. And I, I, don't, I don't know enough about it to understand how that will affect the currency, but I know that's a big, a big deal, right? Um, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, that's how that's how America's been able to, um, you know, sort of accumulate all that debt, right? Everything being traded in U.S. dollars, so that's a big deal. Um, yeah, the, yeah. So the only thing I could really, I could add this right now: our mask mandates ended last month, last Monday. They removed them in Ontario, and um, anyway, nothing's really changed. <laughs> So that's, that, that's the experiment, right? That's sort of what I was waiting for. And I was hoping, I had a feeling that would be the case, but I was hoping that that was me because I'm quite cynical. Um, so I was hoping I'd be completely wrong on it, but it came and went. And um, there's a lot of places I've been and it hasn't changed at all. I'm still the only person, you know, without a mask on. And actually some people now you see with the mask and now a full plastic face shield on top of the mask. <laughs> And so that that's been interesting to see, um, you know, because that's basically the experiment, right? Like they lift it and see what happens. And, and you can be sure that, you know, the professional classes, the ruling classes are all watching very closely and, and have, you know. Well, I think there's calls. a I think there's a mutually reinforcing thing here uh, in which the mandatory mask where you have to wear a mask, people were forced to wear a mask. And then after a year, they came to like their mask uh, when they went outside, when they had been going outside less. And so when they did go outside, it, they were anxious and they felt the mask was like a security blanket. And now they don't want to be without their security blanket. And, and because they're ever that isolation, that sense of isolation hasn't gone away. Uh, even though, you know, all the restrictions have been lifted almost everywhere. I sense, you know, here on the streets um, in Norway that something has changed. It's subtle, but I feel like there's less, fewer public gatherings. And when there are, there are fewer people and there's just something has shifted uh, in, in the, the psyche of, of people, I suspect. But anyway, um, but your thoughts on on Russia, Ukraine, too, because I know we talked a bit last night and um, I wanted uh, to hear. Yeah, anything. I mean, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to listen to the whole podcast since I missed it. Um, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, obviously, I, I'm shocked that here we are again, you know, supporting another NATO, um, you know, another NATO I mean, I would call it a NATO war. I, I don't call it a war, a war on Ukraine by Russia. Uh, in my head, oh. it's NATO. Um, so it's shocking. It's, um, I mean, I feel really fucked up by it. I'm not gonna lie. I feel quite lost right now and isolated and, um, you know, sort of hopeless. And hopefully those are all temporary things. Um, but yeah, that's how I feel the past, you know, while. Well, let's let's talk about um, the the this rehabilitating fascism idea just a bit more, uh, because because, you know, BBC denies there are Nazis in Ukraine. Oh, they've all gone away. There's a Jewish president. The Nazi party only got one percent of the blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, but we know full well that the military is fundamentally Nazis, the Azov Battalion is openly so, and they've been committing war crimes in Donbass. They've now been, you know, there's all kinds of reports and videos of uh, roaming gangs of the 
these neo-Nazis. They get Roma women and tape them to poles, paint them green, pull down their pants. Um, they're beating groups of Roma uh, wherever they find them, but also, you know, others deemed um, unacceptable to these Nazis. Now, uh, there is there is a strange apologetics that is reflexively in place when you introduce this topic to people. First, they well, that can't be true. This is not real. And yet there are videos where you see Ukrainian military watching these women be taped to poles. And you think, well, that looks pretty real. It would be a very costly um, bit of fake video uh, if it is fake. And clearly it's not because from multiple sources all across everywhere you're hearing this. And I know people who are in Donbass now and they're reporting that it's terrifying. Uh, so so it's the, the, it is strange. There is a kind of cognitive dissonance now in the West about the 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 nature of the Ukrainian regime that the US put in place in 2014 and you try to tell people that was an illegitimate election please try to remember in 2014 Victoria Newland whose husband Robert Kagan was one of the guys who wrote project for a new american century that wow. these are the people that uh, advise the president and formulate policy. And they very cynically knew that to foot a Nazi party, a far right hypernationalist party in power in Kiev would provoke a Russian response. And that was the goal. There was a paper put out by the Rand Corporation in 2019, the plan to de overextend and unbalance Russia. That was the title. And it lays out exactly what has happened. So I'm just curious people's thoughts and yours in particular, Corey, but people's thoughts about why, how, and to what degree this strange acceptance of open fascism has come to be and, and the implications of that and so forth. But anyone, not just Corey. Well, I can start and then everyone can jump in. I mean, I showed some of those videos to a friend of mine who was actually in my home we we're having coffee and I, you know, my computer's there. I showed him some and I was shocked. We almost actually got, well, we did. We got into an argument about it um, because he said, well, well, how do you know what those people did? You know, you don't really know what's being said. You don't know what they did. And it was like, wow, those, those people are civilians. And what does it matter what they did? Like, what do you think they had to do, right? To deserve that. And yeah. you, know, <laughs> you can see the Ukrainian um, soldiers there, right? <laughs> They're Ukrainian soldiers. I mean, it's almost like defying what you see with your own eyes. And then, there might course, be some circumstances in which, you know, taping women to poles and painting them green is appropriate. You know, you don't know. Yeah, but I mean, there's that element, again, it's like tapping into that hatred, you know, and all these things require an enemy and they all require the hatred. And the, I, I feel like the ruling classes over the past few years have really learned how to tap into it. And it's not a new thing. You know, we saw that with Saddam Hussein. We saw that with Chavez. We saw that with Gaddafi. Now we see that with Putin and people have grown up um, and spent whole lifetimes being indoctrinated with this red scare, Russia, you know, red communism. I mean, people are terrified of these things. They don't even know why people hate um, Putin. They do not know why. If you ask them 
what it is about his politics that they that they hate or disagree with they will have no idea they will have no answer for you yeah. um so anyway i'll start with that um johan yeah but I, I can just like reiterate because what, what i see is that this amounts to the, the, the internalization of the actually authoritarian system. I, I think we're seeing the very same thing as what lies behind the, the reemerge of the reemerging of the, the far right in Europe. I mean, it's the, the victim identifying with the aggressor in form of the, the actual system. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and you know, um, rereading all the Frankfurt School writers. Mm-hmm. On on um, on the rise of fascism in Germany, on the authoritarian personality, on the nature of um, this identification with the aggressor, uh, uh, is really pertinent right now. I think, and uh, I will provide that in a link. Some of those things, um, I but I think there's another. I think we're seeing, if if you compare it to Germany in you know 1930. 332334 um the difference is electronic media right and the the effects the, the conditioning and indoctrination of just that technology the effects just the technology put the content aside mm-hmm. just that the habituation to the technology the fact that it is so binary it's like or dislike it's love or hate i don't know um the, it's clicks you know and 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 there's no nuance to things and it lends itself because we saw this previously on social media there would be kind of cyber lynch mobs attacking you know people that were deemed i don't know uh, pedophiles or something they may or may not have been they didn't know but they would be attacked and um, or I don't know, there were countless examples of it. These lynch mobs, these cyber lynch mobs would coalesce forms so rapidly, so quickly, and, and, and then, you know, take on such enormous power and, and, um, and their own life, in a sense, uh, almost instantaneously. And, and people seemed to gravitate to that, uh, in a sense, and I think it's just gotten worse. Yeah, Johan. Yeah, so this is a, a claim I would like to state in, really, in, in front of you who are artists and, and uh, like well-read in aesthetics, but I suspect, I have a feeling that the digital architecture of the social media platforms are oddly similar to, to the fascist aesthetics of, of, uh, of Italy in the 20s and 30s, I mean, you know, fascist modernism. Uh, is this, uh, do, you, do you recognize this? Uh, Absolutely. Huh? I mean, I hate to say this, but I wrote a blog post on this um, <laughs> several years ago. No, but it's striking. I think it is strikingly similar. And and um, that's a whole, you know, we don't have time. I mean, that's an enormous topic. And you see it in Italian cinema um, mm. after a uh, post-war Italian cinema in which they were trying to shed the last um, vestiges mm. of the fascist controlled uh, system and the way in which dubbing was uh, insisted upon and so forth. The fascist orator became a figure of importance, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll put a link to that article, but yes, I think that's an astute observation. And, and I think that it's true. And I think it's probably worse than I think it's probably 
bigger than that. I think digitalization, and I include in that, like things like CGI and so forth for film and architecture, for sure, the fact that computers do the drawings that humans used to do. Mm. Um, um, and and uh, it's interesting because I was talking to an architect the other day because we're just doing this very small build out on the house here. Uh, and he said, I'll bring you a model. I do everything in models because I hate computers. Mm. And, and I think they distort the sense of what you get. And I don't like what I resort to as as um, a, a creative architect when I when I use a computer. Anyway, um, I'm sure he's an outlier. But uh, uh, I, I think. I think the, the way there's something in the way all of these platforms, yeah. all of the browsers, all of the, you know, everything lends itself to 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 something um, reductive and binary and uh, that that is that is in some level tied into the very primitive, you know, back room of the brain i don't know the reptile brain uh it reacts to this because um we're not seeing it be very hard to turn people into little fascists that's for sure um anyway cory Varun, hiroyuki yeah you can almost you can almost see them almost turning up a dial right of hatred and all these different things they need right just turn that dial up today we yeah. need to turn that dial up you know, and to be able to convince people basically, um, you know, to believe what's not true and to dismiss what is true. I, I mean, it's, I don't know, John, it's like you always say, it's breathtaking, you know, it's stunning. And um, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot, how do we reach the youth? I feel like the youth have been sort of subsumed by this machine, right? And where, when you think, when you look back into the 60s and saw all the, um, effort being put into educating the youth, right? Malcolm X said only a fool would let his enemy teach your children, you know, something to that effect. And um, I, I worry about that. I think about that, right? That, yeah. we've, got, that we've lost that. Um, and we're not even looking at that, you know, and, and the um, ruling classes, the, the corporate power, they have full access now and full control, full manipulation and indoctrination of our youth. And so that's really, really concern, concerning to me, you know? Yeah, I think, yeah, it is to me as well, exactly that. Um, Varun? Yeah, I think um, there is some pretty terrifying research about how uh, screen time can be used to manipulate the endorphins neurologically, mm -hmm. dopamine, oxytocin, and serotonin. And I think that... I mean, once you read some of these papers, which are kind of well-established research on how the brain works in relationship to the newer screens that have been rolled out over the last decade or so, it, it starts to emerge that it's a very subconscious mechanism of how people are reacting to what they're watching on the screens. It has nothing to do with clear critical thinking brains. It's only a very deep set uh, addiction of fulfilling the biological needs of the body and that's being manipulated that's like Corey was just now saying that you can just turn the dial up on something and then people start reacting to that and that's it there's nothing else happening really yeah. so it's like 
yeah, it's automatons which are staring, staring into screens. That's what's happened, unfortunately, I think. I think there's something in the fact that we have read all of these, you know, because there's countless studies about the effect of social media on teenagers, um, the, the bullying that goes on and all of this, but also the, the erosion in attention and uh, the rise in ADHD and, and autism of one form or another. Uh, but so I think there's something this, I was feeling this the other day that there is something in, so here you have this, this pool of, uh, chronically, but maybe only mildly depressed teenagers more than usual because teenagers it's normal to be depressed, but, um, you know, and anxious, uh, fearful, but confused, dull, sort of, you know, a dulling effect and a, and a disconnect, a sort of, uh, depersonalization that happens. And, uh, so here you have this pool of teenagers and they are the perfect um they are they are the the perfect audience for this fascist indoctrination in a way uh because this is it is exciting and the the nature of the you know the the worship of violence and and the fetishizing of guns and uh all of this and, and then you set it against the cancel culture and all this other stuff too. It becomes very complicated, but there is something that it is, it is not a surprise to me that, that, that there is an apologetic response to this, this, this Nazism in Ukraine that, you know, a friend of mine read me a Wikipedia entry because I said, look, of course it are not. You know, the, the, the Azov battalion uses the wolf's angel symbol. That was for the wire mark. It was the symbol for Dutch Nazis. It was, you know, a couple of Gestapo battalions had it. And the Wikipedia entry says, oh, it's an angel symbol might be confused with a Nazi symbol. <laughs> and I'm thinking, so what, the, what, what is this tone of apologetics? You know, um, I think because they like it, because somehow it's filling the void in a way that the, the unsatisfying fake artificial human, humanism of liberal white America does not fulfill anything. This hypersexualized violence and uh, you know, much more appealing style codes are trotted out uh, is appealing. And the fact that real socialism and radical, you know, the era of the Black Panthers, that has been disappeared, you know, because the Panthers were hyper sexy. Everybody wanted to look like, you know, Bobby Seale. And so, I mean, that was, but that's all gone. So now you have Van Jones, you know, who's not sexy, who's a, who's a milk toast and boring and Bill Gates and his pastel swear, all this kind of liberal stuff that is boring. It's not appealing. Uh, so on some visceral reactive reflexive automatic level, um, I think, I think people like, and it's also probably unconscious aggression. Now the commander of the Azov battalion, he'll just burn down the world, you know, 
it's the same appeal that disaster movies have i think um you know we need to to tear it all down and start over i don't know i'm just kind of free associating here but hiroyuki i think there's also um 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 the presence of the uh, war mentality um people are encouraged to see the mobilization as a war and um if it's a war um you don't question the um uh the uh reasonings behind it because you know you just have to win and if mm. you go against it you're a traitor traitor so um i think that's how people are reacting uh if the facts really don't matter uh you yeah, just have to win you just have to come up with the uh narratives that are go going along with the uh, uh your side your team and uh, the other team is a traitor uh, i mean if you have authoritarian personality and if you if your values and norms and beliefs are totally in sync with the uh, empire you are fighting the war for the empire so you know there's right. no way around it you 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 are a soldier and if you are not you are working for somebody else you are a spy it's and a great observation i just want to interrupt because i i wrote about that in the blog post that that this fusion of military and hot couture around you know camo but also other military designs fatigues and and the green battleship gray all of these things um makes everyone a soldier everybody can be a soldier in their own private movie you know and so yeah i think but i think that's absolutely literally true yeah. anyway yeah, also the same thing can be said about the uh, the war on virus you know um yeah. so th this is really a consistent um uh hardening of the people into this kind of mentality and at the same time we also see uh the uh the forming of acceptable narratives acceptable um range of discussions and uh, this is i think very very important because that's the battlefield for the subject population we're giving uh, you can discuss about um um uh, certain things like uh, is, is there a nazi in ukraine or uh, how how can a jewish president be nazi and right. those uh, segmented topics you can engage in those things but you cannot question the fact that putin is evil <laughs> and, um, you know the united states is not engaging in uh proxy war um right. i mean people you know, some people try to expand the narratives try to expand the range of the discussion but there is definite um um the efforts of the media and establishment forming this uh place of discussion within the uh, corporate framework so when that happens the topics are going to be safe uh you know you can talk about anything basically relating to the uh this the whole war and uh, nothing's going to change because it's acceptable you know it's it's okay uh, well you know interestingly 
kind of apropos of that in, in, in a strange way, because I've said before, the U.S. wants a Cold War. They want an extended, protracted Cold War. And I think that's very appealing to people. Uh, the weapons that have been sent to Ukraine by the U.S. and NATO are all uh, small arms, you know, uh, pistols, small arms of one sort or another, mines, uh, it, it, all the stuff you would need for um, like counterinsurgency. And uh, because that's what they're hoping. There'll be a, you know, Russian peacekeeping force of some sort, and they can draw out a long protracted um, resistance to that with these Nazis. And it's not enough it's to provide any kind of military superiority to the Ukrainians. They're, they're going to lose very soon and be occupied in some fashion or other. But I think Putin is smart enough probably to know um, he can't he can't literally occupy them. We'll see how that plays out. Corey? I was just thinking um, when you were talking about the aesthetics and that type of thing, just how the past four years, if we look at them, um, a big a big change started with um, Greta and, um, you know, basically how to manipulate and bring people into this, um, you know, whatever story you wanted to tell. And I remember at that time you had... Um, presented in your blogs and I think maybe Jacob as well did the same um, about the pigtails and about or the braids and about I forget the word you, there's a word I'm only on my first cup of coffee you will know the word <laughs> um, the photography that type of thing um, right. and, and just how you know at the time I thought yeah and you had images um, you know to back up what you were saying in that and I remember thinking yeah but 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 why right why like yes but i don't know is is that not some you know a bit of a stretch right no but that's but look where we've come look where we've come yeah no she is the volkish um you know aryan uh sort of nazi ideal i actually i remember that blog post because what i published was a photographer i believe in denmark Maybe it was the Netherlands Christ. I can't remember, but who um, did a photo essay of Aryan types and among the I think it was Danes among the Danish population. It doesn't matter whichever country it was. And uh, and some of them bore striking resemblance to Greta and and the way the, the photographs were framed were identical to what you saw in a lot of the the Greta photo shoots. And that was the origin of it. I remember. Um, But I think, yeah, but this is, this is the rehabilitating of um, of fascism and the revisionist history of fascism. And uh, you know, it's, it's a very curious thing and it has many tentacles out there. Anyway, anybody else? I think we're probably winding up here actually. Um, I think uh, the, uh, the, I think there there are going to be a couple of things um, uh, we can expect. But one thing is uh, uh, just as we saw in um, uh, war on drugs and war on crimes, uh, we're going to have uh, Black Lives Matter. So you know the thing's going to shift, and uh, we're going to be fighting Nazis at some point, and that's uh, something we could expect from. Uh, 
what the US government has been doing. They've been tolerating uh, right-wing uh, extremists, Nazi elements, and the Nazi elements are, the US Nazi elements are training the Ukrainians, uh, yep. and so on and so forth, so, so on and so forth. And also, um, I've seen that the, uh, this social media thing is really accelerating the, uh, uh, the process of um, uh, forming of the uh, uh, discussion table, you know, the binary uh, stage, and also the uh, demonization of uh, people and the facts coming now. And eventually people are going to recognize that things are not going that well. Uh, things are not, uh, you know, fitting together. And that <laughs> those things are gonna lead to apathy, hopelessness, cynicism. And those things, all of these things are form of reactionary uh, directions. And right. that serves the, um, what's going on. So again, we're looking at this uh, vicious cycle of um, um, capitalist exploitation. And it, I think it's really important to uh, point this out and see it as structural problem that's, that we are observing and um, uh, just talk about it at least. Um, <clears throat> I wanna get final thoughts from people and and I agree here, again. I think what I said earlier, I think we're going to see um, a much deeper class segregation uh, and, and uh, a restriction of an acute restriction of upward class mobility. I just think that's, I think there is the ruling class now, you know, birth rates have fallen off a cliff globally and I think the ruling class, the piece, certainly the people behind the reset and all that are quite happy with that. All the eugenics minded uh, people like, you know, leaders of various NGOs like Bill Gates and, 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 um, and even like Ursula von der Leyen and, and David Attenborough. Um, th these are, these are people who, who, I mean, that, that's their stated goal. They think there's too many dark skinned people in the world. Uh, so we're going to see, uh, and, and the limits to travel that, that was always somehow part of this, mm. this massive, uh, goal of, of absolute control, you know? So that's what I think, I think down the road is going to come out of this, but I think there are oppositional factors behind the scenes, right? The Pentagon contradicts the president, Wall Street contradicts media sometimes, you know, Klaus Schwab is encouraging this and that, but it's not being echoed by certain, it, there's something funny going on that I can't quite uh, articulate or, or get into focus yet. That's my final thought. Johan, Corey, Varun, Hiroyuki, any so, last thoughts? I'll just quickly mention, I think it's worth uh, taking a look at a couple of films that uh, I've recommended pretty often to understand the depth of manipulation that we have lived through. One is a series called Century of the Self uh, by Adam Curtis, and the other one is called The Light Bulb Conspiracy 
all of yeah. all of them are, i can i can send you links and all you can attach them yeah uh, i'm going to make a quick comment a light bulb conspiracy is very interesting um adam curtis is a weird figure century the self is great mm, by yeah. and large is yes. great his recent films are horribly reactionary Yes. Weirdly, weirdly so. But I agree. Century of the Self is is wildly entertaining, if nothing else. But it's it's pretty great. Um, Curtis himself, I'm very suspicious of. Okay. Anyway, um, uh, anybody else? Johan? Yeah, I can send you off with a with a poem if you don't want to say anything, Corey. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, it's by someone named Marge Piercy. I've never heard of her before. Yeah, American called, poet, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, American, yeah. It's called To Be of Use, and it could have been written for you guys, I think. <laughs> the people I love the best jump into work head first without dallying in the shallows and swim off with sure strokes almost out of sight. They seem to become natives of that element, the black, sleek heads of seals bouncing like half-submerged balls. I love people who harness themselves, an ox to a heavy cart, who pull like water buffalo with massive patience, who strain in the mud and the muck to move things forward, who do what has to be done again and again. I want to be with people who submerge in the task, who go into the fields to harvest and work in a row and pass the bags along who are not parlor generals and field deserters, but move in a common rhythm when the food must come in or the fire be put out. The work of the world is common as mud. Botched, it smears the hands, crumbles to dust. But the thing worth doing well done has a shape that satisfies, clean and evident. Greek amphoras for wine or oil, hopey vases that held corn put in museums, but you know they were made to be used. The pitcher cries for water to carry and a person for work that is real. That was great. That was perfect. Um, okay, let's leave it there. Thank you, everybody. I'm glad you made it, Corey, even if for the tail end of things. Um, uh, thanks to Jack Littman as well, who... Uh, put this together and um and i hope to do this again uh, soon all right goodbye thank you, thank you. Later.